Basics. This is the Preparatory Podcast. I am one of your hosts today. My name is Samuel Jordison. Um, I'm joined with my two friends. Jason Kane. And Andrew Smith. We went a little out of order there. Uh, yeah, it's usually things up. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we are going through, it's been a little bit, but we are going through the chapters of the Book of Mormon chapter by chapter and talking about the things that we read and the things that we want to discuss and the things that we want to apply or not the things we want to apply but the things we can apply to today in the wisdom that is found in the scriptures and it's been a little bit but um, we're really excited to jump into the biggest book probably my favorite book growing up as a kid because it featured the most war and most action pack scenes and heroes that i um, wanted to be like and we're starting in chapter one today. So before we get too far in, I'm going to toss the speaking ball over to you guys. And just because it's been so long, what happened in the book of Mosiah? If you could recap that really quick. Well, we were introduced to several different timelines. Um, and this is going back a couple couple episodes, but the gang is kind of all split up, you know, uh, from the, obviously we've come a long ways from uh, Nephi and Lehi and their family, but there are several groups of good people and a couple groups of bad people, you might say, and they were made aware of each other. And so a couple of the good groups have come together, that being Alma in the wilderness and then the people of of Limhi and, um, and now we are into the the post Mosiah era of um, his sons and Alma the younger, who had that great experience of uh, the angel coming down, much like Paul, and uh, totally uh, changing their life. And Alma was the one with the, the really big experience, but the four sons were also very much changed. And um, they went out to the Lamanites, and we're still kind of dealing with uh, the repercussions of of that choice that they made. So there's also a new democratic system of government uh, introduced at the very last verses in Mosiah and uh, Alma the younger um, is the newest and the first of these judges. They are called in the reign of the judges. And we're just going to kick things off for the uh, uh, just going along with what Sam was saying. You'll see as you read the book of Mormon, um, they, they use this starting period as a way to track time too. So there's two ways, or three ways, I guess. They they say it's been um, 50 years or, or however many years since they landed in the in the new world or left to Jerusalem. They might say, and you'll see that towards the beginning of the book. And now we're into the era where they'll say it's been the third reign of, uh, year in the reign of the judges and then when we get closer to the end um we'll a little spoiler for you but then they then they start saying it's been blank years since uh jesus has come and we've had that great destruction so um this is into the the second part of they're kind of they're not evenly spaced throughout the book i don't think but um these are the three different ways that they tell time in the book of mormon just as an fyi so uh when the reign of the judges starts, it's actually um, approximately 100 BC to about 78 BC, somewhere in there. So somewhere around like a 22-year window that we know that the reign of the judges started is not really far away at all from the birth of Christ. And we're going to see that there's a lot of things that happen um, before then. 
All right, Jason, do you want to tell me what happens in the first few, the first year of um, the reign of the judges? Because Alma's presented with a problem in his first year of service. Yeah, so basically in these next multiple chapters, really, we have kind of a five-year span of Alma really trying to help build and guide the church um, because many have been converted. But immediately we see this uh, fella, Nahor or Nehor. I don't know how people actually say You got to pick one and stick with it. (laughs) I'm going to say Nahor. (laughs) But uh, so he comes in and he has basically preaching a different doctrine that is more giving himself um, glory and financial gain. For he is a very strong man. He is a very strong man. As it says. Yes. What significance do you think that has for us? Because it's obvious that when Mormon was bridging the plates, he was like, all right, I'm going to put in that he's a strong man. So why? I guess I have my theories, but. Well, yeah, uh, I don't have a specific answer, but I do believe that we tend to look for either strong people as our leaders. And we've talked about leaders nonstop through this podcast, but yeah, I I think if you see some strong guy and he might be well-spoken and um, able to kind of gain garner an audience really, then it's easier to lead someone if you are physically and mentally strong, I guess. It also, I see similarities with, uh, this is kind of going off on a tangent, but talking about, I see similarities between this story and then uh, when it describes David's son, Absalom, having really long hair. And um, uh, because it mattered later in the story, his strength kind of matters a little bit later in the story, as we're probably just about to say, because he does something bad. And, and, and so anyway. For all of those uh, wondering why Absalom's hair mattered. What happened? He uh, led a rebellion against his dad and was his dad, who was the king, David, and um, riding under a tree and his uh, long locks got caught in the tree and uh, his horse ran off without him. And so he's left hanging there and somebody told David and that's how they captured him finally. So that's why. Yeah. That's why it matters. Oh, I was talking about Nahor, but that's okay too. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, there's some more context. <laughs> Sorry, I was just kidding. Um, <laughs> well, I think we should probably define what I was talking about. Of so, this is priestcraft that Nahor is participating in. First case, first case in uh, this uh, society with the Nephites and everything. Although, okay, so Alma says it's the oh among yeah among this people, but yeah. it has been introduced in the Book of Mormon before in uh, Sherem and Jacob chapter four. Right. I think we discovered. Yes, we did talk about that. Um, so yeah, priestcraft. And and so it says, and he had gone out about among the people, preaching to them that which termed, which he termed to be the word of God, bearing down against the church, declaring unto the people that every priest and teacher ought to become popular, and they ought not to labor with their own hands, but that they ought to be supported by the people. And he also testified unto the people that all mankind should be saved at the last day, and that they should not fear nor tremble, but that they might uh, lift up their heads and rejoice. 
for the Lord had created all men and had also redeemed all men. And in the end, all men should have eternal life. So when I read that, um, that basically took that he was teaching one personal gain. And then while personal gain is a, I guess a false doctrine, personal gain on the scriptures or on the gospel is obviously false doctrine. Um, he preached a, I just kind of made it listed it as a false doctrine. So he preached personal gain and I was kind of separating those and I don't know what you can do to separate those in words, but, um, well, it, it makes the people's responsibility shifting from following Christ to basically doing their bidding. And that is like the anti-gospel, which is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what is interesting to me is that obviously Mormon phrased this in a way that was easily recognizable bad for us or we could tell when we read it like okay this is not true or this is not good but i i thought it was so funny how um looking at it he was like saying hey everyone's saved also give me money because i'm the one preaching this like it's mm-hmm. well if all men saved then why does it matter if you're really rich or not you know like why do we even have priests if everybody's saved or why do we have teachers yeah. if everybody's saved so and that's the thing if you're pretty uh good with priestcraft then um i'm sure the people really wanted to give him all this money because they were he was teaching them things that they wanted to hear and well and and i mean he was probably saying these people these other people who are in the church are probably being deceived and so we must enlighten them you know mm-hmm. they're being burdened with this yeah. awful awful falsehood and yeah. so and if, I need to go you, teach them, yeah, so I, give me money. Yeah, so I really, can go I, I'm in need, them, yeah. so you should give me more money so more yeah. people can hear. I guess, I guess my question that I would ask him if it was that easy would just be like, why do more people need to hear if we already know? But you answered that, that they're working. They don't have to work. But really, it doesn't even matter because they're saved. So do whatever you want. Safe. Obviously false. And then the other point being that I guess it, it would not be that easy to it, when we're in these situations today, it's not like we have someone, a holy prophet, who's abridging and summing up everything they say into clear, concise ways. It's going to be persuasive and it's going to be appealing, I think, um, when we come across that. And that speaks to, uh, I know Sam and I have talked a little bit about this with Val Brotherson, but with discernment and um, the gift, the important gift that that will and is right now uh, will be especially for the end times with all those confusing things. And, and I mean, that we're, I mean, we have confusing things now, so it, it's important now and it'll be important tomorrow and keep being important. But we see that lived out here. And, and the church is at this time is not, you know, a super long established church that has all their sound doctrines and that they know are right. And here, it shows that really probably the adversary is the most strong when you're the most vulnerable and weak and new to the gospel. And, you know, you hear it a lot from converts of as soon as they converted, that was some of the hardest times that they had to go through. And that, you know, Satan was tempting them the most is when you're new to something and you can be led astray because you're trying to figure out your next steps and your whole path. I, so I looked up priestcraft um, just to see what it was defined as. And funny enough, there's an actual, like, priestcraft is kind of like the job, like the, like, Webster's defined it. I was like, oh, the art of being a priest, you know, for those who are, you know, it's like going, you know, that's your craft. So that's what you're doing. And 
it's really only um, re- the restored churches that can trace priestcraft back to being a negative terminology. But and there's not an official definition because of that, and that we would know in the sense. But I really like this one uh, that someone I saw. It was kind of a personal definition, but they said it's an Im- priestcraft is any imitation of what Lucifer did pre-mortally before. I don't know if pre-mortally is the right word, but, but before the fall, like anything that he did before the fall, which was like basically what we know of, hey, give me glory, give me gain, give me, and then using it for esteeming oneself. So we could, we've kind of touched on it before. You know, it's tough because we circle back on these topics all the time, but do we have priestcraft today? And we have yes in the the broad sense of like personal um, experiences with, or I don't know how I want to say that. Like it's easy to point at the mega churches or whatever and mm-hmm. say like, oh, that's priestcraft. Cause, but there's also very good people in those who just don't know better that are like, yeah, I get paid for this, but it's just yeah, my job. And I'm, I'm not trying doing to it for the money. Yeah. I'm doing it for, yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, it depends on what they're preaching. Yeah. Right? That's true. Yeah. And we also know that the church had, when it was everything was in order in, after 1830 and 1860, is that we had paid or they got stipends as like appointed uh, 70s who were, you know, paid a sum to go off in a far off place and work to build up the church there. And so we know that it's not necessarily. Yeah, the most and, and we still kind of do that today too. Like churches will support missionaries going yeah. to other countries, and and there's nothing wrong with that. Like someone's got to pay the bill to for missionary work. But I do, I think it's good for the church to make that own decision and really not make it a coercive thing. And it's for all sure. um, giving freely. I see. Um, I say. I say this. <laughs> You said we circle back to things a lot. I circle back to this a lot is that we look for blanket rules where it's just not relevant or um, good to have them in certain places. And this is one of those cases, I think, because the 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 fight that the church puts up or the uh, um, the thing that they do in response to this this issue of priestcraft coming up is that they humble themselves and, and they like give their hearts to God. And, um, and so I, I mean, like it's one of those blanket rules where we're like, well, anybody that receives money from the church is, is practicing priestcraft. Uh, I mean, the line gets a lot grayer there and you just, it, you have no idea where it is. And that's not to say I, that it, that isn't the case. I, I just don't know. But what is very clear through scripture is that it is, priestcraft if you esteem yourself more than the people that you're preaching to i mean that that's like what lucifer was before the fall right he was in the presence of god and yet he was like uh i want to be better you know and and that that makes a lot of sense to me i like that definition too uh something that i talked about a little bit earlier before we recording was other ways that we could see priestcraft in our days. And I kind of posed the question without for sure knowing how I thought about it, but if emotional manipulation from the leadership of a church, it also counts as priestcraft. Um, obviously that is wrong, but you know, talking about definitions and things, but we see that in other, you know, more mainstream churches 
and uh, one one example we have recently seen was um, a former Kansas City Royals player. Shout out. Uh, yeah. Ben, friend of the show. Friend of the show, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ben Zobrist, who was on the 2015 championship team. Uh, he is a Christian and his wife is Christian and they were doing a marriage counseling with one of their priests or um, whatever, uh, you know, priesthoodly thing. But this guy, while doing marriage counseling, kind of used his position of authority and kind of the opportunity that he had to maybe be alone with Zobrist's wife. And and so it ended up kind of um, being where the priest and his wife were having an affair. And that is very much uh, somewhat emotional uh, manipulation where you may be seen as a good man and using your authority to kind of take advantage of certain situations. And he knows that they were struggling in their marriage and she would be susceptible to an affair probably. So I, I think it's a, it helps to just see it as you use your position in the church to get gain, whatever yeah. that gain may be. Uh, I, I mean, if, if that's what he valued, then that's what he, I mean, that's what he was looking for, obviously, because that's what I got. Um, but that, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I think not applying, I don't know. The, the money thing is such an easy thing to call out because we're not for the, well, like we said, even when the church was in order, 98% of ministers didn't have money. And if they were paid, you know, in a way that was like, Hey, I'll pay you to come preach or whatever. You know, that was a serious red flag because it's so spelled out there. But I think you bring up a good point that priestcraft probably today and in our branches um, is going to be a lot of different other or different types of uh, manipulation and gain getting. So I don't know what that necessarily looks like. Um, and it'd be hard to call it out <laughs> because I think there's probably only a few people I have, you know, and maybe you others too have heard of the testimony, not testimonies, but experiences of pastors and ministers having affairs within the church. Like, you know, and I don't know if that constitutes as, um, priestcraft, if they're not, if like, I don't know, you know, it's obviously wrong. I don't know if yeah. that they're, they're not using their priesthood to get yeah. gain. Yeah. And it's a yeah. very case by case thing. And it's a very individualistic thing, probably in our church more than, than anything. But I think the emotional um, or the what's what's the word when it's in oh intangible. It's very much an intangible thing today in our church and in our branches because it's almost like the what do you gain? Well, you get popularity, and the restoration is small to begin with. And so, if you're you know big in the restoration, then you're not really big at all. But you do have a lot of connections, and you might be able to influence things a certain way. But I'm not one to yeah. But it says out. that. We're not supposed to search popularity. And yeah, that's one of the first red flags in this chapter was that he was preaching that all preachers should be popular. And, but the other thing is too, that you can't, okay, I'm just going to use him as an example, like Oakman. So Oakman speaks really, really well, very, very famous. You know, he's not by all accounts, he's not seeking after popularity, but you know, yeah, he is like really heart. good at speaking. Yeah. So yeah. It, you can be popular without seeking it out. Yeah. That's me. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you could say we're trying to get gain by That's true. Yeah. <laughs> making a podcast, but we're not asking for money. So, and we only have seven listeners. So it's not like we're, <laughs> yeah. Shout out to those seven. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> so moving on, we see that Nahor also is in his attempt to become a more significant figure. And um, through the pride of his heart, he ends up uh, killing a man who was an instrument in the hands of God, which um, whose name is Gideon. And so after that, basically Alma is like, all right, we gotta, we gotta judge you here. And so can I, so I'm going to back up. I think this shows that they, they couldn't get him on priestcraft alone. Like they didn't arrest him on priestcraft. They arrested him because his actions that stemmed from priestcraft and his desire to get gain caused him to obviously murder someone, which was a crime they could commit. Mm -hmm. So I think that if there's, I don't know. That's a but you do see in their judgment they, they yes. take the priestcraft pretty pretty yeah. seriously, and that's where they say this is the first um, instance of priestcraft among these people, and so much so that you would enforce it by the sword. And but and, I think sorry, the point I'm trying to make is that before that, or sorry, it's almost like the fruit born of priestcraft is what they have to judge. Now mm-hmm. and then they use the the seed or the the reason of priestcraft being why he like the motive almost like yeah so the motive obviously bad but didn't yeah I don't know well and we we look at these being in the church we look at these scenarios where it's mentioning priestcraft and we say oh he had a salary that was given to him and it might not have been as clear cut as that back then. It might have been, I mean, under the table. A, a lot of people might not have known that he was being supported by the people. Yeah. And, and oh, well, I mean, I guess I say that, but he was preaching that they shouldn't be. Um, so uh, you can yeah. take that with a grain of salt. But like like we said, I guess priestcraft can be intangible as well. There were probably just a lot of intangible things that they just, I don't know, weren't getting him on, you know. Because you can't until you see the fruits. Yeah, and that was my that before we go around calling everyone we disagree with who's who we think is preaching false doctrine for being priestcraft. I think the fruit is what you look at, and then you can say, okay, what did this fruit cause? Because I've heard people call people in the church that they don't like priestcraft, but you know, it's just they haven't. Not that you have to murder someone to be accused of priestcraft, but. But if you do, you're probably there. <laughs> if you're considering murdering someone to uh, uphold your authority, then uh, yeah, you're probably engaging in priestcraft. <laughs> Pretty obvious. And conspiring to murder, which is also serious. So don't That's do that. definitely a crime. <laughs> and so Nahor is sentenced to death. A uh, $10 word alert in verse um, 23. Sorry. That's my... Uh, reading through this, we had a study group that did, we started the book of Alma, we didn't finish it, but, um, for those of you who don't know, Nahor suffered a what type of death? A what type of death? An ignominious. Ooh, what's that mean, Andrew? Well, I actually looked it up before this. (laughs) It, uh, means public or shameful. So, uh, and, and they clue you into that a couple of verses before when they're deciding 
how he would be judged in verse 19. They said, if we weren't to kill him, the blood of the person who he did kill, Gideon, um, would be upon us for vengeance. And so we need to do something equally to to repay for the debt that he... Yeah, and, and they obviously, like, th- since they mentioned that this is the first instance of priestcraft, they they want to make an example out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it might be a harsher penalty in this case, especially given the murder. But... Yeah, with the priest well, and, the, there, and like, that he wasn't going to be repentant, which yeah, is a, exactly. which is I mean the murder was the fruit of that probably, yeah. but yeah. yeah. And, and so they got to make a um, example out of him, and so they he suffered an ignominious death because very public and shameful. Say, so don't do this to everybody. My kickball career was ignominious. Wait, <laughs> <laughs> ignominious. My, hold on, I want to say that over. My baseball career was really ignominious. <laughs> ignominious. Ignominious. <laughs> Are you sure? Ignominious. Oh, you're right. My baseball career was ignominious. There you go. It's a good joke. If only I said it right. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't stop. So you talked about the punishment being severe. It doesn't end up stopping people because they realize, hey, look, here's a loophole. Let's do it. And the reason that they get away with it is because they claim to really believe it. And you can't punish someone much like today for their beliefs. Which is uh, something that I found very interesting. They they knew it was deceitful. Uh, by saying that they were pretending to believe it, they knew it was deceitful. And so these were people who were obviously not wanting to do it the right way and who obviously esteemed themselves higher or valued themselves higher than everyone else around them. So these were a group of people who were very prideful um, and looking to get rich quick. And that shows itself through what they start purchasing and they start buying costly apparel. I'm wearing a Patagonia shirt right now. I feel really victimized on that. (laughs) I don't, I don't do fast fashion. Like if I buy a shirt, then it just stays my shirt for literally as long as it can. I don't, cause I don't do trends and stuff. So I don't feel mm-hmm. that bad. Cause I really don't buy shirts that much. I buy a lot of cheap shirts until they get gross. <laughs> <laughs> but so we have the answer for, um, prescraft there in verse, um, 37 and 38 or how it, not the answer, but how it should be. And it basically, it says, uh, the, the priests who are laboring, the true priests of God, they're leaving their work, so they are working, and then they share the word of God um, with the people, and then the people leave their work to hear the word of God, and then when they hear the word of God or when they've taught the word of God, they all go back to their jobs. And basically, there's no one that's better than each other. It says that the priest not esteeming himself above his hearers, which lends itself to our classic uh, cliché. That is on our bingo sheet when the presider or the speaker says, this applies to me as well, or I'm mm-hmm. guilty of this as well. So watch out, myself. folks. Yeah, I'm guilty of this myself. If you hear that, make sure you print it off our bingo sheet and uh, check that one. Put the date and the guy who that, said that and then turn it into Andrew when you have a bingo. Now that I've seen that bingo sheet and it's full glory, it's like always in my mind when I'm preparing <laughs> a sermon. <laughs> Like, um, I'm, I'm going, I'm like, all right, sorry, Mr. Oakman, not today. <laughs> no quotes from him. <laughs> we need to, oh, we should put it on the Restoration Basics Facebook page. Yes. So it goes out that way. Yeah. It'll have a link. Yeah, we'll have a link and it'll be, downloadable. It'll be, it'll be great. 
and uh, turn in your bingo sheets to Andrew or Jason or me. Boom. But it, but then it ends with um, I'm gonna pass it over to Andrew for here because we had mentioned this before the show notes. Um, after the priest who has been you know teaching them and after the people who have been hearing go back to their work, it kind of explains in 39 and 40 what the church was, and they were a very giving church. They were a very humble church, um, and and in their not esteeming one above another, um, it says they weren't really focused on the things they wore. And we kind of broke that down into like, okay, well, we're not just focused on things we wear anymore. There's tons of more options to be um, interested in. And so I'll let Andrew talk about that. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I was a reunion and someone brought this up and um, we were talking about Zion, which is something that I'll mention in here uh, in a couple of verses, 45 and 46. But she was talking about how uh, the the people at this time were looking after costly apparel or actually it's just a big theme in the Book of Mormon. Um, one of the big fruits of pride is that they go after costly apparel. And she was asking the question to herself, well, what's the equivalent for us today? And like Sam says, we're not exactly focused just on clothes. There are a lot of things that we can be showy with. And um, she brought up several different things that we can show uh, to our friends, neighbors, friend, uh, family, and all that, anyone who's around us to just show that we have money. And those would include transportation, um, houses, uh, vacations, you know, uh, name something. I mean, a- anything. Anything in uh, excess. A, a yacht, you know, <laughs> that that would be, yeah. And so um, anything like that. And I, I don't think it's just the way we dress, but it does include the way we dress, possibly. I think the bigger picture than that is that they had or they used their money for the those who needed it. Like, you know, they had extra. But the, the people who, like, they weren't spending money on costly apparel because they were giving it to people who also needed it to survive kind of thing. And so not necessarily that there was a bad thing with wearing nice clothes or comfortable clothes in those days or us today having things that we might need or things that make life easier. I mean, with the whole Zoom thing, if you had an iPad or a tablet and made going to church or preaching or whatever you're going to do for the Zoom service really easy compared to if you didn't. So, you know, not that that's what you should be focused on, but. Well, and that leads into what I was alluding to earlier with 45 and 46. And it says, thus their prosperous circumstances in their prosperous circumstances. So that um, they were very prosperous at this time. As in, it says at 44, they, they had a lot of flock and, and herds, uh, fatlings of every kind, abundance and grade, gold, silver, and precious things, silk, fine, twined, uh, twined linen, and all manner of goods, homely, of good, homely cloth. That's interesting. Homely cloth. <laughs> Maybe I should clad myself with some homely cloth. <laughs> anyway, they had a lot of good stuff. Um, but even in that, that they were, like Sam was saying, giving to the poor, which, Sounds a lot like the foundation of Zion. Uh, Sam and I were approached earlier this week about teaching classes um, about uh, the the term all things common. And um, this is a good, a good representation of that term. Um, the people who had a lot but gave a lot. And, and they did not turn away, as it says, those who were naked, um, hungry, thirsty, sick or not been nourished and um yeah uh, i i think that's uh, one of the easiest ways to see 
um, people not in priestcraft, but not in just a false relationship with Christ is, is where is their money going? Is it going to those who are in need around them? Because if the answer is yes, then they are probably doing something right. And not always, I'm sure there's an exception, but bad people don't like to give money away, especially to people who they don't like. So, yeah. Yeah. And and that's why we say for a while, it seems like the phrase was money is the root of all evil. But then we're like, no, it's actually the love of money is the root of all evil because money very much is a useful tool. And like it says in verse 46, they didn't set their hearts upon riches, but they had them. And so that's where you're able to do what they were doing and grow the church. And he said, they didn't set their hearts upon riches. Therefore, they were liberal to all, both old and young, both bond and free, both male and female, whether out of the church or in the church, having no respect to persons as to who stood in need. So when you can use your money for a good, like giving to the church or of your own free will, just giving to those in need. That's when you can really harness the the power of money to do the Lord's work. Those blanket rules and blanket statements are so are what we like because they're easy to tell and we don't have to think and we don't have to discern if that makes sense. Like, okay, if I wear costly apparel, then that's bad. And then we just don't deal with it. And, or we, and then everyone who does wear costly apparel, we can be like, okay, they're sinning or, you know, they're, we want them to be true, but most of the time it's not. It's like every, everybody that I really know preach preaches and who I've talked to, it's always been about the heart and it's always been about what your mind is. Do we want to talk about the different schools of thought in the costly apparel or in the nice clothes? I mean, for church on Sunday, because we have two different um, groups way. We have way more than two different groups, but uh, we have multiple cultures within the restoration branches that um, stress or de-stress the importance of looking nice on Sunday. And uh, sometimes it can get confusing because they both sound good, but uh, or they both have good arguments, sways, but which one's right? Do I need to wear a suit, three-piece suit with a white shirt to get into heaven? Or is that messing up my piousness and will actually lead me down to the deep dark Andrew Smith now the deep dark Andrew I hope not <laughs> um, well another one of those blanket rules is that good intentions are you know I've, we, you know the phrase um, <laughs> good inten- good intentions are the the Path the path to hell, hell. yeah, that that's what it is. Yeah, <laughs> the, the path to hell is is paved by good intentions. Yes, um, that doesn't mean the the cement of good intentions is bad. Uh, <laughs> it just means they subcontract to hell. Uh, oh. <laughs> Every once in a while, <laughs> uh, that's a weird way of saying that. But anyway, um, it works. It works. Um, but like you said, it, it does. It does matter what your heart is. And and if you're wearing nice clothes for people to look at you and say, wow, those are nice clothes or wow, he looks nice or she looks nice in those clothes. And not because I want God to have my best, uh, 
then yeah, I think you're in danger of of having pride in your heart and and being uh, involved in that that sin of costly apparel. If if you are wearing bum clothes, uh, I say bum clothes, just uh, anything, uh, regular street clothes or anything like that, and you're doing it purposefully because you want to make those around you more comfortable. Maybe it's for an, an uh, a ministry where you're you're going to people who don't have a lot of money, and you don't want to ostracize them by saying, "Well, here in our church, we we have a lot of money, so you should listen to what I say," you know. And and, and I don't think that's good either. So maybe in that case, it is it is better to wear I don't know what the the people are wearing, but also and, and it just comes back to. Blank rules are hard to follow, and so sometimes we shouldn't have them. I think I I just thought of this, and so it might not make sense. But I think a good... Lit- oh, it makes sense. Oh, thanks. All right, I'm done. <laughs> no, I think a good litmus test to um, do is, whether in your own branch or in your own experience or in your own heart, say you are all about the you know wearing suits and... Say your suit gets torn all the way through. You can't wear your suit anymore. What is your reaction the night before you go to church? Is it, oh no, I got to go get a suit real fast and spend, you know, $300 and so I can fit in? Or is it, all right, tomorrow I'll just have to wear my jeans and a, a nice shirt. You know, it, if you feel like you need to go, especially if you can't afford it, of, you know, rushing out to buy that new suit. I think that's where you're kind of getting into more of the pride in your heart. And we we want to look good. Um, like in this, in this chapter, it says that the people weren't, um, weren't buying all these costly apparel, but they, it does say that they were neat and comely, I believe. And comely, comely, um, and so, yeah. And in the other direction, if you're dressing down just because you don't want to look nice, then that's pride too. Cause you're caring about your appearance more than just being at the service and worshiping Christ. And so you, you just have to kind of look inward and see what your reactions would be to different scenarios. Um, and, and that applies to anything dealing with pride or sin or anything. So yeah, just, just self-reflect. I used to go to church with a guy and he would, if he was sitting up front, he would never pay um, his tithe or he would never put anything in the plate because he didn't want it to seem like he was showing off by giving in front of others. Like, and before anyone's like, well, that's an easy way to get his wife who is in the, would pay, you know, but he made sure that he would never. Now, I don't think that that means that if you're sitting up front that you should never. Yeah. I was actually thinking about the opposite of that the other day um, when I was doing offertory, I was just thinking, all right, should I give up in front of people? Because one, yeah, it could be like, all right, I'm you know showing off that I have this money to give. But on the other hand of that, it could be, Hey guys, look, we are not just asking the people to give money. We are asking our ministers to give money. We're volunteering. Like we're all equal here. We're all going to give that, that of what we can. And as long as we aren't preaching that you have to give as much money as you can, 
as long as we're saying it's acceptable to not give if you can't, but to give what you can. And um, yeah, that goes back to the state of our hearts. And it comes right back into the chapter because, uh, I mean, that's exactly what the uh, the people of, of Nihor and Amlekai, who are about to talk about, are saying. It, it's, it's not that we're giving to, it's that you should just give to me. And um, again, that's oh, another one of those <laughs> blanket rules that's hard to see. You know, like, I, I don't know if he's trying to support himself or, you know, um, but... Yeah, sorry. I didn't have a lot to say there. Actually, I did, but I don't remember what it was. So, <laughs> even worse. If you could sum this podcast up in four, word, it, four words, it would be, it's about the heart. Yeah. Like, I don't know a single episode that we have had that we haven't said, you know, it's about yeah. a change of heart or something like that. So, this is not in the first chapter of Alma, but what do you think about preaching? Because you can almost make the same excuse for preaching, that they say the same things over and over, just in different ways. You always need reminders. <laughs> <laughs> so this is your weekly reminder to... Uh, Change your heart. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, sorry, I kind of got a stagnant there on the story. Uh, do you want to dive in? Because the, the church does pretty good. And we've talked about the persecution before, um, but they're about to face it again in the next episode of Alma and the Church. And this is kind of a scenario where um, we talked about Abinadi and Alma, where Abinadi died and and was a martyr for the cause of the gospel. And Alma heard the message and planted it in his heart, and and he really grew in that gospel. Um, Here we kind of see the opposite of that happening with Nehor being publicly humiliated in the way of him confessing that, oh, yeah, I was trying to deceive these people. I was just lying to get gain. And someone hears that and says, wow, that's a great idea. And along comes Amlekai, who is that opposite Alma, as we might say. And he comes and he stirs up the people and continues to preach under the facade that this is what he really believes. So he can't be arrested, <laughs> as we uh, said earlier. And he stirs up the people, um, and and then they try to do what, Jason? Oh, I was just gonna say he also is. It says he's basically under the order of Nahor. It's, they say he was he being after the order of the man that slew Gideon by the sword, who was executed according to the law. So I just think that's interesting that um, even though they did execute Nahor, that there still are people that will hold on to really the, the heresies that was preached. Do you think, uh, and this is kind of a weird question that I just thought of, they keep calling him the person who killed Gideon. It's yeah. like it's like that focus that we now have with people that uh, do terrible acts, like, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, like school shootings that have happened in the past. They try to not let that name out because the that person is trying to seek attention. Yeah. And so this, I mean, this might be one of the things the church is trying to do to say, hey, somebody tried to do this, but he doesn't need any more attention. Yeah. And they like, just bring you back to Gideon, who is a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, yeah, that guy yeah, who yeah. killed Gideon. Yeah. Yeah. That, <laughs> like, that guy, the, whoever it was. Yeah. If you don't have the name, you kind of forget about him and yeah. you blow him off and he's the bad guy. But, you know, this is just a fun little history nugget. There's a guy in, uh, it was, 
now in Western Turkey. Um, but there was a guy who now goes by the name of um, Herostratus, who, to be famous, burned down the temple of Artemis. And he did it simply because he wanted to be famous. This has really no bearing on the Book of Mormon. But his punishment was that, um, well, he'd be executed. And also that no one would ever say his name again. And you think, okay, someone lied. They don't think Herostratus is his real name. They think it was like given because they just had to refer to him as something. So that was his punishment of never being referred to as the same name. Now we know that Nahor is mentioned, but found that interesting that it's kind of like a cross-cultural thing that if people do this, that you kind of just want to reinforce that it's bad, not that they were famous type thing. Yeah. So he didn't get what he was looking for. That That's what they were kind of, the lesson they were trying to push is, yeah. you want fame, you're not going to get it this way. <laughs> and um, so as the events unfold, Amalekai doesn't just want to be rich. He also wants to be king over the people. And so within like five years of this new democratic system, there's already a guy who wants to just be in charge, be good old dictator again. And so he using his wise words or honey-soaked foolish words, I guess, um, convinces a portion of the people that he should be keen. And they they vote because it's a big enough deal um, about what they want. And there's enough righteous people who know that this will lead to their destruction who vote, know that they want to keep the judges. And Amakai and his people are not happy with that. So they kind of leave and they form their own little sect and they consecrate him keen over them. So they've willingly given up the power or given up following the regular Nephite laws and said, we're going to take this into our own hands. He's going to be king now. And I'd like to, what do you think were the motivating factors for them to, to leave their way of life and follow Amalekai? On a personal level, I think he has to, he has to be appealing to the things that they might have rose-colored glasses on, or... It also says that he was very wise in the ways of the world. And so those people who may not have very strong faith, because obviously not everyone in this society is going to be, you know, super strong in the faith and doing everything right. So these people can be led astray. And if all they know is the world and the wisdom that's in the world, which you know isn't very wise then this would make sense to them. And this is the ideology that they're like, all right, that makes sense to me. Let's follow that. And so, yeah, people find what they want to believe in. And I'm sure he's reinforcing some ideas that they really like that are false. So I, yeah. And I agree with that, but on a, so trying to make this real, I think what I was trying to get at was, so I bet he probably appealed to their, um, desire for either the good things about a monarchy or something like that. Cause we know that now, obviously this is not true. If you live in a dictatorship, the dictator wants something done. It gets done immediately. Like that's just how it goes. Um, if you live in a democracy or another type of government like that, it's very hard to get things done. Um, unless it's a major event or something like that. But like, and this isn't, obviously this is skewed because it's a Russian statistic and they kind of have to, but p- 
Putin has like an 80% or did a few years ago, an 80% approval rating when he's like been in power for, for forever. And you can be like, well, he's not a real dictator, but you know that he's pulling strings <laughs> to keep being in power. Um, and so like, but it's cause he gets things done also, which I'm not advocating at all for that for us. <laughs> I'm just saying that uh, a better example is probably Rwanda. Um, Rwanda has a president and presidents in quotes that basically stopped their genocide, marched in, and keeps everything spit spot and span, uh, like perfectly in order. Not everyone's happy with him, um, but he keeps the peace and the rules are very strict and efficiency is good, if that makes sense. So um, I bet that, I don't know, that's what I imagine that he would have appealed to if if I was trying to guess what Amakai was talking about. I agree that in the ways of the world he seemed wise probably meant that he had some ideas that don't make sense if you're not strong enough in the faith. I had, uh, I don't want to talk too long, but um, so I was at, at camp this summer and we had uh, one of the boys there at the camp was someone who was kind of new to the gospel. And so he would read um, thing, or hear about things more like, and he'd be like, well, that just sounds wrong. And you'd ha- have to explain it. It is wrong. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Like, it's like some of the curse from the Garden of Eden. He was like really confused about that. And it's like, well, that's that's there because it's not supposed to be like this, if that makes sense. So I bet, yes, that there were some things of the world that seemed better to people that were like, well, if you're not all in on this Jesus thing, then this is the best way. So that's how I think he got power. I think it's just another reminder for us to evaluate continually where our heart lies, um, because we might, we may or might not be uh, surrounded by a version of Amalekai today. Um, but it's very possible that that person is around, and I'm not trying to allude to an antichrist or anything like that. But there are people who will try to take you away from the truth and. To fend that off, you need to know what you really want and the motivational factors behind what you want. Um, B.J. Schultz, just at a reunion a couple of weeks ago, talked about the reason why we do things and, and their motivational factors behind those, those being uh, primary and then secondary. And primary might be, uh, and they're all different for everyone else, but primary for for Jason might be, hey, I, I want to make all decisions so that I can please God and then uh, choose, I don't know, anybody on the street. And their their primary motivational source might be, hey, I want to do things that help my family financially or, or I don't know, that cause me to feel good or something like that, you know. Um, and we need to keep evaluating those because – it's easy for us to let a secondary take over a primary if you're not conscious about it, you know, and, and these people might not have been conscious about theirs. But like a secondary for Jason could be like primary. He wants to please God. Secondary. Um, he wants to please his wife, which isn't a bad thing, but sometimes there's going to be things. And I definitely don't want to call out Amanda, Amanda on that, but like <laughs> there might be times when it's like three oh. o'clock schoolyard. <laughs> Bring a shovel. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> and and um, 
but like there might be, there's going to be times when those are either at odds um and same for anyone who you know and then when you don't follow the primary reason you're going to have regrets over that and the story as a whole um also brings the thought to me of not putting your trust in man or the flesh and when these people put their trust in Amalekai, um, they're being led astray. And so when you put your trust in Christ and the gospel, then leaders may come and go, but you'll still have the ultimate leader, which is Christ. Absolutely. And so when this conflict to, to keep moving around in the story, unless you guys have more to say, um, the conflict with the Amalekites who are bitter with losing this election changes into a war actually. And they, they fight against the people of the, well, they, they call them Nephites still, um, the people who are in the church and, um, the people of Nephi has to come and they, uh, take to their tents and departed out of the valley, valley of Gideon towards their city, which was the city of Zarahemla. So they got to leave because it's getting so tense. So they, they're going into, uh, or back into Zarahemla and back home. <laughs> and that's going to be stuck in my head. Uh, and they are being pursued by the Amalekites and they are almost as numerous as the Nephites, as it says in verse 84. And the Nephites were strengthened by the Lord um, because obviously they were faithful to him. And he strengthened them, and the Amalekites did fall before them. And Alma, it says, fought with Amalekai with a sword face to face, and they did contend mightily one with another. And so um, it seems that Alma is almost being bested here because Alma cries out to God and says, O Lord, have mercy and spare my life that I might be an instrument in thine hands to save and protect this people." And you can, again, see his primary motivational source in this instance is to be faithful to God, to be an instrument in his, hand, is in his hands, and to save the people who are, who are being faithful to God as well. And God honors that. And um, he done puts him six feet deep. He does put him six feet deep. That's right. And so... Um, Pretty much that, I mean, that was the end of the conflict for a little bit. The Nephites pursued them as they overpowered them and slew them. They were met on every hand, slain and driven until they were scattered into the west and the north until they reached the wilderness, which was called Hermounts. There was a bit of a team up though, too. We do see the Lamanites join in with the Amalekites to fight against the Nephites because Nephites and Lamanites are just always going to fight. So, but also the Nephites team up with the wild beasts, and as they force the Lamanites and the Amalekites back into the forest, it says many are devoured by wild beasts. Boom, ravenous, ravenous and, beasts, and that's like basically God. You know, just he's might be guiding these wild beasts. More she bears out at work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What do you fear more, Jackie Chan with a ladder or a prophet with a she-bear? <laughs> Both pretty terrifying. <laughs> They're probably the prophet with a she-bear. Yeah. Either way, you're going to lose. Yeah. But. 
one might involve eternal damnation or something like that. I don't know. I didn't know Jack. <laughs> <laughs> And as we uh, close the battle, the Nephites kind of take their victory and they praise the Lord. And um, again, God reminds them, this is kind of not to get too far into this because we've talked a bit but about it already. And I know we're going to talk about it again. And this episode is already long. But God, again, reminds them that they're kind of his people. And if they're his people, then they need to stay and strengthen themselves in him because they are not ready to go out and to work side by side with the Lamanites because they're going to be influenced. You saw how easily the the Nephites where it was a, at least a good portion of them that, you know, voted for a um, even though it wasn't the will of God. And so I think when God's here telling them that, Hey, they need to stay and um, not necessarily mix with the Lamanites. He's saying, Hey, I've kind of called you. And if, you're going to be righteous then you need to be righteous and you can't go dabble in other things right now because we know that that's not always the case that when you're strong and when you're uh, grounded in him and on that rock that he does send you out to places that don't know him because we just read the story of Ammon not too long ago but uh they battle again and Nephites and Lamanites do and then there's uh peace for a little bit because the Nephites win and just wrapping up chapter two real quick. Do one of you want to, it's, it's only 28 verses long. What happens in chapter two? So here we're in the sixth year of the reign of the judges. So basically post-war, the Lamanites had destroyed a lot of what they had. And so they were grieving and it says, so great were their afflictions that every soul had cause to mourn. And they believed that it was the judgments of God sent upon them because of their wickedness and their abominations. And so they work to um, establish the church in um, more solidly again, because it says this brought a remembrance of their duty to the church. And um, it ends up that through the next few years, um, the church has this time of peace and, um, you know, uh, about 3,500 souls um, that united themselves to the church of God and were baptized. And that was in the seventh year of the reign of the judges. So the church is growing. Um, stuff is looking up. But then we see kind of the implications of peace, which is an interesting way of saying it. But um, like Jason said, they've had some peace for a time and they've been prosperous for a time. But we see um, not necessarily the natural progression of peace, but uh, what can easily happen when a people are in a time of peace, and that is that they are lifted up because they are prospering. And it says um, they were being caught up in the same things that Amalekai and Nehor were preaching. Um, they were pride lifted up in pride of their own eyes. They began to wear very costly apparel, and it caused Alma great affliction. In 10 and 11, those verses are. Um, and this is all kind of happening kind of fast now. We uh, <laughs> say fast, um, but really they, they have a lot of years with the judges, and this is just in the first seven or eight that this is all happening, and they're, they've already gone up and downhill. Um, and the eighth really starts with envying, strifes, malice, persecutions, and pride. 
especially to those who did not belong. Oh, sorry. Even to exceed the pride of those who did not belong to the church of God, which is an interesting point. They were obviously starting to say, hey, we're we're better than everyone outside of the church too. So um, just something to avoid. <laughs> I just want to say that again, reinforce that point that Alma was mourning and sad, um, not simply because they were wearing costly apparel, um, but because of the wickedness, it says that he saw the jealousy and the scorn that they had for one another. And I think as someone who um, you've seen that you, you see this in anyone who has truly seen what the gospel can do to a people. And then that people not measuring up to what they know it's capable of um, when um, you know, he's seen, people who are giving freely with their money and not worried about money and not worried about, you know, so much about themselves and how they look and how they appear, but are worried about the welfare of their souls to, and the other souls. And that's not happening anymore in the church. Um, and so I think he knows, and those he's trying to train, you could say, those he's consecrated to be priests, teachers, and elders um, and teaching them, they're not seeing what he's trying to teach them to to build or to minister for. And the biggest thing he says in 19, it says a great inequality among the people and them turning their backs on the needy. Um, and this was great cause for lamentations. And, and, um, and so because of that, so he steps down basically from the judgment seat. He says, my time as being the chief judge is over. And he selects a guy, Nephi Ha, um, to be in his stead. And, um, Basically, this is Alma rolling up his sleeves, putting on the Ritz, and uh, getting to work. So I'm excited to get to that because we got a really cool sermon um, in in chapter three. Uh, just a quick point: this is something we just see in most societies that once you struggle through a time of growth and war and all these things that really you don't have much control of your own situation and in some of these crazy times where with war you're going away to fight and you're you're you kind of have to lean on god in those scenarios um and especially with the nephites they they did because you know it showed that alma cried out to god in the midst of a battle to lean on him and was provided strength but then comes the fruit of that struggle, like they get through this and this was the time that they struggled for. And so they're in this piece, like you're, you're searching for peace, but then the next stage of peace can be um, decadence. And with decadence, you see a lot of pride creeping up in, in all civilization. Like there, once you become peaceful then there's usually a time of decadence afterwards. Um, it's just kind of a, a natural progression that um, can be avoided, but um, it, it often is not avoided. And so, yeah, we just, we just see that in this time. And yeah, Alma is like, all right, I need to focus more on the spiritual things of my people and not just the uh, more political things and just trying to keep the society going. Uh, I need to work on these people's hearts. So, yeah, I think we're going to wrap up there um, on that great point from Jason. 
and uh, we will catch you in chapter three. If you have any questions, comments, criticisms, let us know. Um, we're excited to get back into the Book of Alma. Hints on how to say Nehor, Nehor. Yeah, th- that's always a good thing to know how to oh, say words. Also, yes, some people say Alma is Alma. So. True. I also was. Those people are wrong. I was listening to um, the scriptures being read, and there was a few ways of uh, pronouncing things that I didn't know if it was correct or not. But I was like, maybe I should listen to that. And just as a clarifier, I have no idea. Yeah, I I, I don't either. So <laughs> there's a lot of names. <laughs> That's been great. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> this does it with this episode of the Preparatory Podcast. Sam's walking away. Have a good one. <laughs>